We're in uh, Luke 21, and we're going to look to verses 34 to 38. And I'm going to go ahead and read, uh, oh, from 34 to 36, just to kind of get it in our in our minds. And so uh, Jesus says here in Luke uh, 21, 34, he says, And take heed to yourselves, least at any time your hearts be overcharged with serviting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare that shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. He says, Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus is now coming to a close in this prophetic narrative that was prompted uh, by questions that his disciples had asked of him because he said to them when they were admiring the temple that uh, Jesus said to them, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another in regards to this temple. And this got them interested. This, you know, piqued their interest. And they wanted to know, okay, what is this all about? What are you talking about? And I know I have pointed this out on uh, a few occasions. But to me, the key verse of this entire prophetic section is found right here in Luke 21:27, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. To me, that gives the whole sense of what he's talking about. He's talking about his second coming. He's talking about the events that are leading up to his second coming. Um, in uh, verses 8 through 11, he Remember, we talked about the the three major uh, characteristics that would be indicative of those last days, confusion and religion, which I have here with this man with the serpent coming out of his mouth, the false teachers, the false Christs. He talked about uh, political uncertainty, uh, national disasters. Uh, Jesus called these things in Matthew 24, 8, the beginning of sorrows. All right. Now that beginning of sorrows is the beginning is the is the first three and a half years of the great tribulation. All right. Then Jesus later on he talks about in uh, verses um, uh, well tw- uh, twenty five through twenty seven. Then he talks about. Um, uh, the the signs and the sun and the moon and the stars. Well, that's that great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years. So we talked about all of that. And then he also said something else, a very key phrase that you need to hang on to. uh, Being a uh, believer in Jesus Christ, he said, but before all these, right? Before the great tribulation, before the beginning of sorrows, he begins to tell them what is to take place and what we know of as the dispensation of grace, Ephesians 3, 2, or the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Colossians 1, 27, or what we know of as the church age. Right? When God is, according to Acts 15, 14, calling out of the Gentile peoples a, a people unto his name. So he's, the body of Christ is what he's, he's bringing about. He's bringing about what we look at in Romans 11, the fullness of the Gentiles. And if you remember, we talked about that too. 
The fullness of the Gentiles is when all the Gentiles that are to be saved, all the Gentiles that are going to become the bride of Christ, uh, all of those that will be saved and called in has happened. And when that last Gentile receives Christ as their Savior, then I'm thinking that's when Jesus is going to come in the rapture and take away his bride. Okay, that's, that's the way I see that. Now in Matthew 24, he talks about these same things. But Matthew's gospel is with the viewpoint of the Jews in mind. So that's the perspective that he approaches all of these things. It's from the Jews because it's the Jews that will experience the 70th week of Daniel. Now I know that's a lot of, what is the fancy term for that? Eschatology? (laughs) The study of end times? And I try to lay all of that out with all the graphs and the charts and stuff that I put up there. Okay? But that's what he's talking about. But in Luke's gospel, if you remember when we first studied Luke's gospel, who did I tell you the target audience of Luke was? The Gentiles. The Greeks. That's you and I. That's you and I. And so his target audience was the Gentiles. That's why in Luke's gospel, this is the only place you're going to find this term, the times of the Gentiles. And at times of the Gentiles, if you remember, we studied that. This is all kind of review. All that began in 606 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews into captivity. And ever since then, Jerusalem has, just as Jesus said, been trodden under the feet of the Gentiles. Even, even today, Jerusalem is trodden under the feet of the Gentiles. We also looked last week at the sign of the fig tree. And again, in Luke's gospel, this is the only place you're going to see the mention of these other trees. So as you see the the fig tree coming about, Luke mentions other trees. And I spoke about those other trees, I think, last week. I don't know, it all kind of blends together sometimes. But I said that those other trees are those empires that Daniel prophesied about in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 that we would see a resurgence of these empires once again coming on the world scene and we are seeing that we've got Iran that represents Persia as well as Turkey we've got Greece now coming into the forefront and that's one of those things that a lot of people don't look at but Greece is starting to step forth onto the world scene uh, in, in some ways that's very impactful what's, what's going on and also I mentioned in Revelation 13 when John saw the beast rise up out of the sea he had all of these uh, empires represented within the beast so as we see the fig tree which is Israel 1948 of May of 1948 we start seeing all these other trees that Daniel talked about also coming to the surface also coming to the surface so now with all of that okay does that all make sense you're kind of looking at me with this glazed look in your eye okay we we went through all of that that's what all the charts and stuff are all about okay so now what we are we're getting right here to the end stay with me 
Put your seatbelt on. So now we're coming to the conclusion of all of this prophetic narrative. And so Jesus now closes out with an exhortation and with a warning. And I believe that this exhortation and this warning is meant for you and I today. Because you remember what he said. When that generation sees these trees show up, he tells us that summer is nigh. I think we're, we're in that time. I think we're in that time. And I think that Jesus is warning, exhorting us today what he's saying here to his disciples. You know, uh, Jesus knew his time was short. He knew his time was short. In John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the earth, he knew his time was short. In fact, in the next chapter of Luke, we're going to start reading about that. The Last Supper, his betrayal, his crucifixion. So Luke is going to quickly conclude with the story of Jesus. Jesus knew he would soon be arrested. He knew he would be crucified by his enemies. And this is a this might stretch some of you. But I think he also knew that there was going to be a new dispensation. I think he also knew that there was going to be a church age when he sent the Holy Spirit to that 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. I think he knew about all that. In fact, I know he knew about all that, right? And so he knew what many today openly deny. And that's the problem. That's the problem. As I pointed out in a previous lesson, this is not popular to teach dispensations. It's not popular to teach rapture of the church. It's not popular to teach the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not popular to teach that the fig tree is a sign of Israel coming back as a nation. That's not popular in much of Christianity today. In fact, I quoted one noted Bible scholar that said any particular focus upon God's redemptive purpose for his ancestral people is not warranted. It's not found in the Bible according to this guy. I'm sorry, yes it is. Already talked about that, I'm not going to rehash all that stuff. You also might remember when I talked about Revelations 1-3, through that's kind of a precursor to the rapture. Now some teach, and I go along with this, but some teach that those first three chapters, Ephesians, you know, talking about the Ephesus, Smyrna, and all that, that is a prophetic historical outlining of church history. And I've read some good books on that that just go into some amazing detail. And yeah, it makes sense to me. I see that. But some have also taught, and I I even agree with this, that with those seven churches, even though it is a prophetic outline of the church age that we're living in, it is also 
the spiritual attitude of churches evident today in the time that we live. Now, I, I go along with that, too. I go along with that, too. <clears throat> We've got the church of Ephesus, the busy church that had lost its first love. So busy about ministry that they forgot the reason why they're in ministry. I see that in lots of churches. You've got the church of Smyrna, the persecuted and suffering church. I've visited churches that are Smyrna churches. Persecuted churches. Smyrna is one of the churches in that first three chapters that God that Jesus does not rebuke. Jesus does not rebuke the church of Smyrna. In fact, he encourages the church of Smyrna, fear not. Be courageous, be strong, fear not. Then you've got the Pergamus church, the compromising church. So fixated on being relevant that the gospel becomes irrelevant and they begin mixing doctrines and they start teaching grace and works. We see that today. Then we have the next church, Thyatira, the adulterous church. On the surface, it appears religious, but it's in bed with the harlot. I could mention a particular denomination that fits that to a T. You have the Sardis church, the dead church. The church that's going through the motions, but there's no life. There's no moving of God's spirit within that church. I visited a few like that. Then there's the Philadelphia church, the faithful church. Philadelphia is the second church that doesn't receive a rebuke from the Lord. Because it's a faithful church. This church has a promise. Revelations 3.10 says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation or trial or trouble, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So this church is to be counted worthy to escape the trial, the trouble, the tribulation that will fall upon the whole earth. And then you have the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, the tepid church, the self-sufficient church, the self-satisfied church, the self-absorbed church, the self-deceived church. This church receives the strongest rebuke from the Lord. The strongest rebuke from the Lord. And here's my point in presenting this, this description of the prevalent attitudes of all of these churches. For as far as the church age is concerned historically, what period of that time do you think we are now living in? We are living in the Laodicean age. There's the spirit of the Laodicean church that has settled on Christianity or Christendom on Christendom 
And I believe what he's warning us here, and I've got it in my heart, in the margin of my Bible, I believe what he's warning here is don't fall under the spell of the spirit of the Laodicean church. Don't allow yourselves to fall under the spell of the Laodicean church. Especially when we see the sign of the fig tree come to pass. Especially. Now is not the time to allow ourselves to fall into this Laodicean heart attitude even though we may live in this age. We should not fall into this Laodicean attitude, especially since we've seen the fig tree come about. Especially. So if I were to summarize everything that Jesus is getting ready to say, this is how I'd summarize it. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. Don't take your eyes off the prize. You know, Jesus knows the heart of men. John 2.24, But Jesus did not commend himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify a man, for he knew what was in man. He knows that we can become easily distracted. He knows we can. He knows we become easily distracted, and we can drift away. You know, this, this admonition, take heed... It's found 55 times in the Bible. Almost 50-50 between the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you'll find it 29 times. In the New Testament, you'll find it 26 times. So if it shows up 55 times in your Bible, then that's something that's kind of important, don't you think? Take heed. In Exodus 34:12, the Israelites were told to take heed. And not form a covenant with the idolatrous inhabitants of the land. But they did. They did. And we see churches today are doing the very same thing in wanting to be relevant and seeker friendly and not to appear intolerant. So they're compromising. They're compromising. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, Take heed and don't forget the mighty works of God. And don't worship idols of the people that surround them. But they did. Churches today are becoming pragmatic, materialistic. Uh, Many churches have business goal-oriented models. They're running their church like a business rather than modeled after the word of God. And so they water down the gospel to attract customers. And yes, I've heard that language used by church leaders. Deuteronomy 27.9 They're told to take heed to never forget that they were God's chosen people. And yet what we're seeing today is that there are many who are ashamed of the gospel. 
And they no longer preach the gospel. They no longer preach the message of repentance or the message of sin. It's more of a, a message of um, self-esteem and pop psychology. And, and God wants you to be a millionaire like me. That's what you see a lot of out there now. The very things that Israel was admonished to take heed about are the very things that the church today is falling into. You know, it's interesting, this word take heed, one of the applications that I found was uh, to bring a ship safely into harbor. You have to be careful when you take a ship into harbor. That's what it's talking about. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. To bring a ship safely into harbor, take heed. 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, look at verse 18. Somebody there? Somebody can read that for me? Keep going all the way down to 20. Putting away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. Have made shipwreck. So many have allowed their faith to become shipwreck because they listen to scorners and skeptics or they've listened to false teachers or they've taken a flippant attitude uh, towards the things of God, uh, forsaking reading the Bible, forsaking studying the Bible, forsaking even coming to church to hear the word of God preached. I mean, that's one of the things that we've seen here with the COVID, and I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay that. But people will not come and hear the word of God preached. You know, and there's a danger there. If you get out of the habit, you create another habit of not coming. You understand what I'm saying? The longer you're away, the harder it is to come back. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing. A lot of folks, they don't get involved in ministry. They don't get involved in reaching others for Christ. They've taken on this Laodicean, lukewarm attitude. They've become careless in their attitude about such things that are important the souls of men, the word of God they're no longer attentive to their stewardship concerning the things of God another use of this word is found in Acts 16.14 in Acts 16.14 it says a certain woman named Lydia a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira which worship God heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things that Paul spoke. That's also taking heed. You give attention to it. You give attention to it. 
How many times have we read about a young mother leaving their child in the car in a hot day? Simply being inattentive. Not attending to what was important. 1 Timothy 4.13, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, which is preaching, and to doctrine, the teachings of our faith. Give attendance, uh, give attendance to those things. Give attendance to those things. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed, same thing, to the things which we have heard, least at any time we should let them slip. Let them slip. You don't pay attention to something. I remember we went to a mall. And um, very crowded. Had all our kids with us. And I told Diane, I'm going to go over here and I want to look at this thing. Unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to Diane, Heather, just a little girl trailed in behind us. She must have gotten lost in the crowd. I went back to Diane, and Diane was panicked. She says, where's Heather? Where's Heather? We had lost her in the crowd. Inattentive. Inattentive. Remember the first point about bringing a ship? Of course we found her. She's sitting back there. But, you know, remember the point about the ship safely in the harbor? The word slip means to be careless and just sail on past the harbor and onto the rocks. We need to be attentive. We need to take heed. We need to hang on to these things because there are people wanting to take them away from us. See, the religious leaders today, not all of them, but it seems like, isn't it weird? It seems like those folks who are telling lies are the ones who are shouting the loudest. And it seems like those who shout the loudest are the ones that are being heard. Well, there's a lot of folks out there shouting a lot of lies. And they're being heard. Why? Because people are not checking it out. Jesus says, when you see that fig tree coming, don't get distracted. Now's the time to be attentive. You know, as an illustration, the temperature's changing, the trees, they're losing their leaves. The birds are gathering and beginning to disappear. Squirrels in my neighborhood are building nests. People are beginning to do things to their home. What's going on? Well, it's the fall season and they know that winter is coming. And so they're preparing for winter. Jesus says when you see the fig tree show up, know that summer is nigh. That's when things start heating up. Even though winter is coming seasonally, spiritually, things are beginning to heat up. Don't become distracted. 
Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. You know what that means? That means that I have a personal responsibility to take heed. That means you, yourself, have a personal responsibility to take heed. That's what it means. It also means that we are to collectively look after one another, too. Not only am I to make sure I stay right, but if I say anything up here that you guys question, question it. Check it out. And then come to me and let me know, because if I'm wrong, I want to be corrected. Because the last thing I want to do is teach something that leads somebody astray. And if you see somebody else that's going astray, guess what? Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be, attempt, be tempted. Yeah, I make sure I, stay, I, I take heed and... I look out after my brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, one of the signs of the Laodicean age, you remember what Cain said when God asked him, where is your brother Abel? What did Cain say to God? Am I my brother's keeper? See, that's also a part of the spirit of the Laodicean age. It's that me, myself, and I mentality don't fall into that don't fall into that so Jesus says we're to take heed to ourselves so what are some of these things he talks about well he says here uh, take heed to yourselves he said anytime your hearts remember it's always a hard attitude be overcharged with serviting and drunkenness and cares of this life Now, the word overcharged means to become so weighed down that it's a burden to carry. Overcharged. So weighed down that it's a burden to carry. This is something that um, takes demands upon your person and your emotions and your mind and spiritually speaking it's a distraction it's a strain on your resources it's a strain on your time it's a strain on your sanity What we find out is that these distractions now become a priority. And that's not really our priority. They become a priority. He mentions uh, surfeiting and drunkenness. What in the world is surfeiting? Well, drunkenness we understand as being intoxicated. That's coming under the influence of of something. Uh, Something that 
creates an artificial euphoria, whatever. So that's what it means. You're simply coming under the control of something, whether it's alcohol or whatever. Surfeiting is when you come down off the high. (laughs) It's the consequences of drunkenness. It's that hangover. It's the result of that intoxication of whatever it is. You know, Jesus in the book of Revelations, when he was rebuking the Laodicean church, he called them wretched. (laughs) That's harsh. He called them wretched. When I read this, I I was reminded of the fella in Proverbs 23. He's the drunkard. And he talks about, you know, like he's up on top of a ship mast and he's waving back and forth. And in the last verse of uh, Proverbs 23, verse 35, he's, he's, this is him talking. He says, they have stricken me, shalt thou say, and, when I, and I was not sick. They have beaten me and I felt it not. And then he says... When I shall awake, I will seek it again. That's being wretched. That's being wretched. That's, that's knowing something is harmful for you, for you, but yet you still do it. You still do it. Uh, you're never satisfied. You want more of this. And there are people that are that way religiously. There are people who are always looking for that next spiritual high. And so they chase after the, the, uh, the, the false teachers and those guys that tell you that this is the best day of your life type of thing. They have these itching ears and they flock to these guys. And they never realize that this is really a hindrance more than a help. Ephesians 5.17 says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine, where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. See, so many people chase after these things... And they prove to be a distraction to them. And then they become under control. They become influenced by these distractions. And so their eyes are taken off of the prize. The key is who is in control of your heart and mind? What has caused you to fall into a spiritual stupor? What is it that you're indulging in that is proving to be a distraction to you? Who or what is wooing you away? That's coming under the influence. The other thing Jesus talks about is don't become overcharged by the cares of this life, the the worries, the anxieties, such as money and disasters. 
Philippians 4, 6 says, Be careful for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, it's interesting, that word care, that word care means to divide, to separate. That's what happens when your mind is full of anxiety and cares. It gets very confusing. You find yourself going this way first and then that way first. Your emotions are on a roller coaster. First you're angry, then you're depressed. That's what anxiety and worry does. There's no peace. There's no peace. When we become overcharged with anxiety, we find it very difficult to focus on what is important. In fact, what happens is we take our eyes off of what is important, and we're chasing all of these things. We allow our emotions to control us and so we get caught up in these irrational thoughts and these imaginary scenarios and the things that we fear the most never come to pass because they're they're in our head First Peter 5 6 says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time Casting all your care upon you, for he careth for you. You know, one of the things that I've, I know personally, and I've seen it in other people's lives, when you start getting overcharged with anxiety and worry and cares, and how am I going to do this, and how am I going to meet that, you know what happens? Somebody puts a worm in your ear that gets you to thinking... God doesn't care about me. If God cared about me, then this and this and this wouldn't happen. If God cared about me, then he would this and that and this and that. See, that goes contrary to what I just read. See, I did a study on that God careth for us. You know what that means? And I know you've heard this from me. That means that you and I are the apple of God's eye. Yes, he cares. He cares enough to let you go through some of this stuff. And that sometimes is hard for us to grapple with. But what happens is people are, they isolate themselves from God. They isolate themselves from God's people. They seek refuge in their personal despair in other things that don't give them the hope and the peace they're looking for. But yet they still go after them. The key is if we allow ourselves to adopt a Laodicean attitude, it will prove to be a distraction and we will find ourselves identifying more with the world and its chaos and its lack of hope and we take our eyes off of the true hope that we have in Christ. You know that's true. You know that's true. 
So Jesus is warning to that generation that witnesses the fig tree. He says, don't allow that to happen. Don't fall into that. Because when he comes to to bring his bride home, he doesn't want to catch us flat-footed. And what I mean is being anchored to this earth. That's what he says here. He says here in Luke 21, 34, he says, And take heed to yourselves, least at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that day come upon you unawares. You ever been caught at something you shouldn't be doing? Hand in the cookie jar by mom? I, I remember that. I remember feeling ashamed. I I remember feeling angry for being caught. That's what he's talking about here. In the very beginning of this discourse, Jesus said, Take heed that ye shall not be deceived. I know I sound like a Debbie Downer sometimes, and I apologize for that, but it is a reality. It is a reality. The church today is being lulled back into the world in its desire to be relevant to its society. The church is becoming more and more willing to compromise on what the Bible clearly points out as sin. The church is focused more on programs and mega churches and personality cults. Pastors making themselves rich off of God's people, merchandising their religious goods. Church following anyone who tickles their ears and strokes their egos and tell them it's okay, you can be carnal, God understands. The church today has noted religious leaders that tell their people that they really don't have God's word or God really didn't mean what he said or Jesus isn't really coming back or as I mentioned last week, he's already come. He's already been here. Sadly, I've even heard preachers preach that there is no hell And I've even heard preachers preach that they question whether or not there is a heaven. You know, I've also I've I've wondered. You know, for some folks who are truly born again believers, I've often wondered if the rapture won't be a rude awakening (laughs) because they've been caught unawares. They've been caught flat-footed. You know, when that rapture happens, it's going to be like a trap. Snap shut. And those who are left behind, that's what he says here, all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth will be trapped. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 But when they shall say peace and safety then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. See when it appears that everything is going the way the world wants it to go for them that's when it's going to start falling apart. 
And those who are left behind will be caught with no escape. That's why it's so important for us to tell folks, warn folks. Time is short. Time is short. He tells us, don't let that day come upon you unawares. Like a surprise. That's why he says, watch and pray. Keep your eyeballs open. Keep your ears peeled. Don't fall into this Laodicean spirit. Don't allow yourselves to become tepid and caught up in stuff. Don't allow that to happen. Paul, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want you to see this. I want, your, I want you to put your oddballs on it. 1 Thessalonians 5, common passage. But look what he's saying here. Paul gives a word of comfort to the church. Verse 4, he says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, right? We're children of the light. That that day should overtake you as a thief, unawares. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us what? Watch and be sober. Remember the drunkenness and the surfeiting? For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunk in the night. But let us, do you see the contrast that he's talking about here? Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, that is alive or dead, we should live together with him. You see, there are some out there teaching that the church is going to go through the tribulation. No, it's not. The bride of Christ will not experience the 70th week of Daniel. Seventy weeks have been determined upon the Jews, according to Daniel chapter 9. We're not Jews. We're the bride of Christ. And notice that the admonition of Paul's is the same of Jesus Watch and be sober. Watch and pray. He says here in Luke 21, 36, going back to Luke 21, he says, Watch ye therefore and pray always. This is Jesus. That ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. And to stand before the Son of Man. You know, if, if there's any place in the Gospels that there may be a, a reference to the rapture, I believe this is the strongest one there is. The admonition is for us to watch and pray, to stay spiritually and mentally alert, and don't fall into the Laodicean age and become distracted and be overcharged with drunkenness and surfeiting and the cares of this life. Remember the two churches I mentioned that the Lord did not rebuke? Smyrna and the Philadelphian church. Smyrna, the persecuted and suffering church, and the Philadelphian church, the faithful church. 
These two churches did not receive a rebuke from the Lord in Revelations. Now with these two churches in mind, I want you to go to two places. Turn to Acts 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. With these two churches in mind, Smyrna, the persecuted church, and Philadelphian church, the faithful church. Acts 5, verse 41. This is after Peter and and John uh, were beaten for preaching the gospel, and then they were released. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy. Same thing that Jesus says here, that ye be accounted worthy to escape all these things. They were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. He says, so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of, of God, that ye may be, what? Counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. You know what we see here in these two passages? We see here the two commendable characteristics of these two churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. We see the faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ even in the face of persecution. Even in the face of persecution and opposition. And it was for this reason they were accounted worthy. So when Jesus is saying here that you are counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come, up, come to pass upon them upon the earth, we're not talking about a works-based salvation as some teach and enduring unto the end as some teach. That's not what he's talking about here. How are we saved? Vicki? There you go, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So he's not talking about a works-based salvation. That's not what he's talking about. The spirit we are to have as we see that fig tree and all these other trees coming about is the same spirit of these two churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. In the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, we are to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even in the face of those who appear to be falling away. Turn to another passage, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, 16 through 19. You see, Peter's epistle was written 
to those who were being persecuted for their faith. That's why he wrote this epistle, to encourage those who were being faithful. And because of their faithfulness, they were being persecuted. And listen what Peter says here in 1 Peter 4.16. He says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. In other words, let him be accounted worthy. But let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. When you stand for the gospel in the face of opposition, you're proving yourself worthy. Promises were given to these two churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. To Smyrna was the promise of the crown of life. Those who suffered persecution and opposition for the gospel's sake, they were promised the crown of life and they were exhorted to fear not. In other words, stand strong. Be courageous. You've got the truth. Stand by it. Stand by it. And to the church in Philadelphia, the promise was that they would be kept from the hour of temptation that shall come upon the whole world. Other words, just like what Jesus said here, they shall escape all these things that shall come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. It's going to get tough. But we're not going to go into the tribulation. For Jesus is going to come and take his bride home because we're not accounted unto wrath. There's a promise of reward and there's a promise of safety. This speaks to me of the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelations 19. We are to be like brides preparing for our wedding. Do you ever watch a bride get ready for get married? Everything's got to be just right. The dress has got to be just right. Makeup has got to be just right. Why? Because she wants to present herself worthy to her husband. So she's going to do everything she can to gussy herself up. We as a church should be doing the same thing. Because our bridegroom's coming back, and so we want to be as presentable to him as possible. So we would be accounted worthy. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Colossians 1.10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being faithful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Being accounted worthy is being presentable. Being counted worthy is being faithful even in the face of opposition and persecution. You know, I refer to the judgment seat of Christ when every born-again believer 
will stand before the Lord. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15, he says, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So some will be rewarded because they were faithful. Some will suffer loss because they allowed themselves to become distracted. But both are in heaven. Both are in heaven. See, the key here is we don't want to suffer loss because we've adopted this Laodicean spirit. We've allowed ourselves to become just No, we want to be accounted worthy. We want to be accounted worthy for our groom. John 2.28 says, And now little children abide in him. Abide in him. That when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. To be counted worthy is to be unashamed before him at his coming. And then in closing, Luke 21, 37 through 38, we have the Lord as an example. Look what it says here, here. In verse 37 of Luke 21. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. Do you know what the Lord is doing here? He's doing the very thing that I've been talking about. He is being faithful to his mission even in the face of of his impending death his enemies who have persecuted him and opposed him and will soon arrest him and crucify him even in the face of that he is remaining faithful to his mission he has accounted himself worthy that's our example that's us That's the way we should go about it. In spite of what lays before us, we are admonished to remain faithful because we have a sure reward prepared for us and we have an assurance of deliverance. Therefore, fear not. Fear not. For we shall escape these things that shall come to pass and we will stand before the Son of Man. And the question is this, when we stand before the Son of Man, will we stand accounted worthy or will we suffer loss? Take heed to yourselves, is what he says. Lord God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this um, sober word of admonition. And I pray, Lord God, I I pray I take it to heart. And Father in heaven, that I find myself investing in those things that matter for eternity rather in the minutiae of this world. Help us all, oh Lord, help us all to watch and pray and be sober, especially in these confusing times. 
so that when we stand before you like a bride in her splendor we shall be accounted worthy thank you Lord in Jesus name Amen